I do want to apologize for any technical difficulties we had during our offering time. We did have some microphone issues, but I just want to let you know that we uh, strive to be the best stewards we possibly can with the money that we receive here at Prairie View and try to use it in the way that honors God the best way we possibly can. So we're very thankful to everyone who gives and everyone who supports Prairie View on a regular basis. Now, we are in the fourth and final week of our series, God With Us, looking at the birth of Jesus in Luke chapters 1 and 2. And it might not sound all that fancy and all that impressive to be simply looking at the story of Jesus' birth or doing it for a couple reasons. I'd like to kind of recap those reasons. Reason number one is that the birth of Jesus is so much more relevant to our everyday lives than we give it credit for. It may sound weird to think that a Jewish baby born in Israel 2,000 years ago, all the way on the other side of the world, has anything to do with us right now. But it has everything to do with us right now. And so it is incredibly important that we know the story of who this baby is. The second reason we've been reading the story is that sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't know the story quite as well as we think we do. There are things in the text that we skip over. There are things that we miss. There are things that we might not really pay as much attention to as we should. And then on top of that, there are things that we read into the story that actually aren't there. There are traditions that we have from other sources, and we assume that that's part of the biblical story, but really it isn't. So then reading the story, looking at the text itself, letting the text speak for itself. That's what we're going to continue doing today. We've met all of our characters, Zechariah and Elizabeth, this couple doing everything right, trying to honor God in every aspect of their lives, but they can't have a baby. God sends an angel named Gabriel to Zechariah as he's serving in the temple, and Gabriel tells Zechariah that they will have a baby, and it won't just be any ordinary baby. This baby will have a mission from God, unlike any other baby around. Zechariah and Elizabeth are naturally excited John is born just the way Gabriel said he would be. Neighbors, family, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they all rejoice. Meanwhile, Elizabeth's relative, Mary, a young woman, probably in her early teenage years, she too receives a message from Gabriel that she's going to have a baby, a lot like Elizabeth will. But here's the difference. Elizabeth is married. Mary is engaged and still a virgin. So how in the world is she going to have a baby? Well, Gabriel tells her that the baby in her womb will be from the Holy Spirit. And that just like John, this is going to be a special baby and he's going to have a special mission, but he's going to be even greater than John. He'll have a greater mission. John's mission was to prepare the way for him, to get people ready for him. But Jesus, that's where the rubber really hits the road. Mary and Joseph, they rejoice. They're a little bit confused at first, but God affirms to them that, no, it's okay. It might sound weird. Joseph, Mary's not lying to you. She's not making this up. This is actually how it's going to happen. And they're excited. Later in the pregnancy, they go to Bethlehem as part of a census. And when they get there, Mary goes into labor. Now, we talked about the debate about whether or not Mary was going into labor as they entered the town or whether they had been there for a few weeks already, whether it was in a stable or whether it was in a side room, whether there was an inn in such a small town or maybe a different type of setting. But here's the point. Regardless of where you side on those debates, the humble circumstances into which Jesus is born, that's the emphasis. 
He's a royal baby. Jesus is a king. But he doesn't exactly come with pomp and circumstance. He doesn't come with all the royal treatment that we saw this summer with the royal baby to William and Kate. There's no guy with a trumpet that announces Jesus' birth the way they did there. But don't doubt for a second that this is a royal baby nonetheless. Definitely not the most picturesque birth, born in a manger. Some of the first witnesses of this new baby are shepherds. Stinky guys who are pretty rough around the edges, guys who don't clean up all that well, they're the first guys to see this baby. Definitely not the most picturesque thing you've ever seen. But Mary and Joseph are blessed, and they know it. And they rejoice, and they praise God for this baby, and they do exactly what any good parent would do, any good Jewish parent. They name their son, they have him circumcised, and they sit back and wait for what comes next. Now, that's where we're going to pick up today. But last week, we talked about the incarnation, this idea, God becoming man. And we started with the idea, the basic idea from Leo I, written a long time before anyone else ever said it, like me. Jesus is 100% God. Jesus is 100% man. And there's no problem between these two positions. It's not 75-25, it's not 50-50, it's not two-thirds, one-third, it's 100% God, 100% man. And that may not seem like it makes a lot of sense to us, but keep in mind we're talking about God here. So maybe it won't make enough sense to us, and that's okay. But Jesus is fully God and fully man. And the beauty of that is that when we are tempted, we can look back and know that Jesus was tempted as well. And even though we may fall short... Even though we give in to that temptation from time to time, Jesus didn't. He lived a sinless life, a perfect life, and would eventually die on a cross for us. And the other beauty of the incarnation is the fact that when God is gathering a people to himself, as God saves sinners like us, he doesn't keep us at arm's length. He doesn't refuse to get his hands dirty. Instead, he comes down and lives amongst us takes on a physical body with physical limitations like ours. He gets his hands dirty. He reaches out to those that no one else would reach out to. He embraces those that no one else wanted to embrace. And he challenges us to do the same, to love the people that no one else wants to love in the name of Christ. Now we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 22, finishing out the chapter. But before we do that, I'm going to pray And then we'll get into our text. Father God, thank you for the incarnation. Thank you that you sent your son taking on the form of a servant, being born like us into a physical body. God, not just to be born as a baby the way we celebrate at Christmas, not just to live a good life for us to look at as an example, but rather so that he might die for us. God, thank you for the story that we're reading. I pray that no matter how many Christmases we've had, that we won't let it take it for granted. We won't let it lose its luster because of how many times we've heard it. God, I pray that we'll be challenged, we'll be convicted, we'll be encouraged every single time we open your word. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of the Bibles underneath your chair. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. I'm going to start reading in Luke chapter 2, verse 22. 
When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. I thought about singing the two turtle dove song. can't even remember the name of the song, but then I decided not to. But these couple of verses actually tell us quite a bit about Mary and Joseph and the situation they find themselves in. We see that they come up to the temple. This is probably around 40 days after Jesus is born, and they have to dedicate him. That was part of the ritual. That was part of what you did as a good Jewish family. So they go up to Jerusalem the way they should be doing, but they also have to make sacrifices for their purification. It was ritual back then that as a woman gave birth, she would become unclean. And so after a certain period of time, she would have to offer a sacrifice to become clean again. And until she did that, things were weird. She couldn't exactly relate to the people in the community the same way. She couldn't worship the same way. There were certain restrictions about where she could go and what she could do. And so this was very important that Mary be pure. But there's one thing that's interesting. It says that they go up for their purification, which would seem to indicate that Joseph needs purifying too. Now that would indicate that Joseph was involved in the delivery of this baby. Back then it was common to hire a midwife to help with the delivery. The husband really wouldn't have a whole lot to do with the actual birthing process. And the only way that a husband would have something to do with it is either A, you're poor and you can't afford a midwife, or B, you're just in dire straits. It was probably a little bit of both for Mary and Joseph. That tells you the situation they found themselves in with Jesus' birth. The second thing that's interesting about that purification is that many Christian traditions will say that Mary was somehow sinless, that Mary was divine, that Mary was perfect. And yet in the story that we've read so far and in the overall message of the New Testament, that simply isn't there. She's a lot like us. She's a person created in God's image, tainted by sin, yet striving to do the best she can to honor God. There are certainly things about Mary to admire. We talked about the faith that she shows and the humility that she has being put in this situation by God, yet she isn't perfect. She's a lot like us, needing to be purified. And ultimately, even a sacrifice of pigeons wouldn't do the big purification that we all need, the purification from our sin. There's one final thing we look at in those couple verses, verse 24, the idea of offering two young pigeons. If you turn back to Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8, there's a passage about what a wife should do, what a mother should do when she gives birth. And in that passage, we read in verse 8, if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Now you might be thinking, whoop de doo they kill some birds. Who cares? Well, here's the significance of it. You only offer pigeons if you can't afford a lamb. Again, all this does is reiterate the incredibly humble family that Jesus is born to. A pretty average family in a podunk town, in a stable or a side room, in a manger. Not anything impressive. 
Not exactly the nursery that Mary imagined as she was looking through the catalogs leading up to Jesus' birth. But nonetheless, this baby is a king, and don't mistake that. Now we're going to see a couple reactions of people to this Jesus. Verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This old man, Simeon, is waiting in the temple. And a lot, like a lot of other people in his time and in his setting, he was anxiously awaiting the day that God would deliver Israel, that God would put them back on top. All the generations before had talked about times when David was king and Solomon was king, and they were on top with influence and power and wealth and glory. But that hasn't been the case for as long as Simeon's been alive or even his father's, or his father's father's, and so on and so forth for quite some time. So Simeon is anxiously awaiting the day that maybe this will happen, that maybe this will be the generation where God will put us back on top, that God will put his people back in charge in our rightful place of strength. So he goes into the temple, and the Holy Spirit tells him that he's going to see the Messiah. Before he dies, he's going to get to see the Messiah. You can imagine Simeon waiting by the door of the temple, looking for anyone and everyone who will come in, hoping that maybe this is them. And then finally, Mary and Joseph walk in with Jesus. And right away, Simeon just knows. He grabs the baby and he praises God. He blesses God. And he effectively says, you know, now I can die in peace because I've seen salvation. When I look in the eyes of this baby, I see salvation. It's got to be a humbling experience for Simeon. But he says something interesting. He says that this salvation is prepared in the presence of all peoples. Someone like Simeon would have been tempted to think that God sending the Messiah was mainly just going to be for their people, for their ethnic group. For the people who were born of the right family, the people who meet all the right prerequisites of being in Abraham's line. And yet Simeon seems to realize that, no, it's not just for us. It's not just for the Israelites. This salvation is for anyone who will listen, for anyone who will repent. It's a beautiful, inclusive invitation of salvation. So that bears the question for us. Are there people that if we're really willing to admit it, a little bit subconsciously, we kind of think in our minds that, you know, maybe the gospel isn't for them. Because they don't meet our standards. They're the worst of the worst. God can't possibly redeem those people with what they've done. Because, I mean, definitely what I've done is not nearly as bad as what they've done. But God couldn't possibly redeem them. Maybe it's people that we just simply don't want to be around. 
Maybe it's people that we think don't even deserve to be in our presence. People in prisons. People in foreign countries that may be enemies of our country. People that we just simply don't like. Do we subconsciously believe that the gospel isn't for them? Because it is. It's for all who will listen. All who will repent. And our job is simply to spread seed. Whether it lands on a path or whether it lands on fertile soil or rocky ground or wherever that seed lands, we're called to throw it. To preach the gospel who all who will hear. Simeon seems to get that, and I pray that we do too. Simeon says one more interesting thing, starting in verse 34. He says to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. For a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon seems to be telling Mary that not everyone will be crazy about Jesus. Not everyone is going to celebrate Jesus the way Simeon does. Not everyone's going to accept him and submit to him and honor him. In fact, some people will reject him. That scene pretty early on in Jesus's ministry. Look at Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Very early into Jesus's time in ministry, he goes into the synagogue, he goes to the temple, and he reads a passage from Isaiah. And that passage is seen in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 21. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The sacred passage This passage that means so much to people, that people look to and read and hope for. Jesus reads it and says, hey guys, that's about me. Hope you're cool with that. It's talking about me. So here I am. I'm that guy. The people naturally don't really know what to think about that. They're a little bit confused. They're a little bit concerned. It leads to some further discussion about what exactly this means. And they get to the point in verse 28 where we read this. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Not everyone will accept Jesus. Not everyone will celebrate Jesus the way Simeon did. Not all of our friends will. Not all of our family will. Not everyone that we want to know Christ will end up knowing Christ. And yet, what do we do? We throw seed. We keep throwing seed. We keep throwing seed until we don't have any seed left, until we can't throw any more. And we pray that God will make that seed grow to anyone who will hear. Now, there's one more thing in that statement from Simeon, that thing about the sword piercing Mary's soul. For the first time in Luke, Simeon seems to make the connection that as great as this baby is, as wonderful as this salvation is, it's not going to be easy. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be pain. There's going to be heartache with this salvation. And you can imagine the heartache that Mary would feel. 
30-something years later, when she's back in Jerusalem, the place where she saw Simeon praise God for this baby, the place where she heard that saying that a sword would pierce her soul, and as she looks out, she sees her son hanging on a cross, the son that came miraculously, the son that was a little bit different than all the other kids, hanging on a cross, crying out in pain, this gruesome death. A sword would pierce Mary's soul, and suffering would come to Jesus, and it had to happen for salvation. In verses 36 through 38, we read about a woman named Anna, a woman who's upwards of 100 years old, and she, like Simeon, celebrates this baby, and she praises God that this baby has come. And then in verses 39 and 40, when they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. They do everything they should. They go back to Nazareth. Jesus grows. He gets stronger. He grows a lot like many other boys would. Nothing all that special. But there would be something special later in his life. Now, if you're a student of the Christmas story, you might be thinking, now, wait a minute, we skipped something. We missed something. And that is seen not in Luke, but in Matthew. It's the part where the wise men come. We've read about the shepherds, but what about the wise men? Those are the guys we have in our nativity scenes, right? Well, they did come. Matthew tells the story. These men from far away, probably from Arabia, they come to see Jesus in Bethlehem. And while they're on their way, King Herod stops them. Now, Herod decides that he's going to co-opt these guys to basically use them as spies, that they're going to go and see what the buzz about this baby is and find out who this baby is and then report back to him. Because you see, Herod's feeling a little bit threatened. He's feeling a little bit insecure the way most kings did back then. The wise men agree. They go to Bethlehem. They bring Jesus gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, just like we've always read. But then when they're getting ready to head back, God warns them. Don't go back to Herod. He's up to no good. So the wise men say, okay. They return home without reporting back to Herod. And that just makes Herod even more angry, feeling even more threatened. And so he decides that every baby boy in Bethlehem, two years or younger, will die. He has to eradicate this king. He has to make sure that no threat to his throne is left even if it is some little kid out in the sticks of Bethlehem, he can't take that risk. All the babies in Bethlehem are killed. But Mary and Joseph are warned by God to escape to Egypt, and they stay there for a few years until things smooth over a little bit. They then return, and Jesus grows and develops and matures. We don't really know why Matthew includes that, but Luke doesn't. Truth is that they just simply might have different priorities. They're different guys writing different gospels. It doesn't take away from the story. It doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It doesn't mean that Luke didn't know about it. Luke probably did, but for whatever reason, Luke didn't include it. But that brings us to where we are in verse 43, when Jesus is about 12 years old. 
The family goes up to Jerusalem for Passover, would have been very common. Verse 43, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, amazing them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, before you call child services on Mary and Joseph, they were good parents. Just want to get that out there. But they lived in a time that had a very communal society. So when they had a big caravan of people going to Jerusalem for Passover, they probably assumed that Jesus was taken care of, that he was with some friends or some neighbors or relatives or something. And after all, it's not like he's a little tiny kid. I mean, he's 12. He can kind of fend for himself a little bit. But after a few days, they realized that He's nowhere to be found. None of the friends have him, none of the acquaintances, none of the relatives. And so they run back to Jerusalem to try to discover where Jesus is. And they find him in the temple, sitting with the wise teachers, the educated teachers, the old men who have spent years dedicated to God's law. And he's just blowing their minds with what he knows. This young kid from an average family. He's a prodigy. They're absolutely amazed by him. Now you can understand Mary's reaction. Look at verse 48. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, the first words of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? There's been a lot of debate about how much did Jesus know? When did Jesus know that he was the Messiah? When did he really understand the role and the mission that God had given him? Well, what we see here is that at the age of 12, Jesus seems to realize that he's got a very special relationship with God, unlike other people. And that as great as Joseph is, Joseph's not his real father. He only has one real father, and that's God himself. Look at verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This wouldn't be the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem. He would return. He would be back around the Passover time. It exactly wouldn't be a celebration this time around. The teachers wouldn't be raving about how wonderful Jesus was. Instead, they would be trying to find a way to kill him, to shut him up, to get rid of him. Paul records that in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, at Christmas time, we picture little baby Jesus, cute, soft skin, blue eyes, adorable. We picture all these things, and yet we need to understand that Jesus didn't stay that way forever. He wouldn't stay a helpless child forever. He would die on a cross. And he's reigning right now, not as a helpless baby, but rather as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And all the glory and all the praise and all creation is due him. This would be the last time he was in Jerusalem. It would end with a cross. It would end with that sword piercing Mary's soul, just the way Simeon said it would. This Christmas, I challenge you to not just think of Jesus as a baby, not just think of some picturesque, cute little birth, but look at him as Lord and look at him as king and look at him as savior. You know, we've seen several reactions to Jesus in this text today. The first reaction, Simeon and Anna, they love Jesus and they glorify God and they praise God and they say that this is salvation as you look in this baby's eyes. But then you see other reactions too. Later in Jesus' life, the guys want to throw him off a cliff because of the things he says. They reject him. You see Herod, a man who's threatened by him, wants nothing to do with him. Then you see other people, teachers of the law. They like him. They're amazed by him. They think he's really something special, but that's pretty much all they say. The question ultimately is, this Christmas, how are you going to react to Jesus? Will you be like Simeon and Anna, praising God and glorifying God for the birth of this baby? Will you be like the people in the town who want nothing to do with him, reject him, get away from us, is what they're thinking? Will you be like Herod, who maybe you think that, what if this Jesus is a king? He might be a threat to me. He might be a threat to the way I live my life right now. He might be a threat to my priorities. He might be a threat to my dreams, even. We react like Herod. We react like the teachers of the law. You think he's cool. You think he's great. You think he's a great example and a wonderful teacher, but that's really as far as you're willing to go. How will you react to Jesus? And if you're already a follower of Christ, my challenge for you is this. Keep spreading seed. Use Christmas as an opportunity to share Christ with your family, with your friends, with people that you probably don't see any other time of year. Throw seed. Tell them about Christ. Make sure that they know that as great as the birth of Jesus is, it doesn't end there. That Christ died for their sins to reconcile them to God. And pray that God will grow that seed. How will you react to Jesus? Will you spread seed? Because you can't stay complacent. The birth of this baby, it changed the world forever. And we need to respond. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that this Christmas we won't just 
view your son Jesus with this rosy, cute, romantic Christmas story that we sometimes think sounds like a fairy tale. God, this happened. And your son is reigning as king of kings and lord of lords right now, and he will return to judge the living and the dead. And God, I pray that when that day comes, that we will rejoice because we found hope in him, because we've known him as Savior and as Lord, because we've experienced the grace that you bestow upon us. God, I pray this Christmas that we will share Christ with those around us. There are people that will be around in the coming week that that we will never be around again until next Christmas. God, it's a golden opportunity to share our faith with them. It's the greatest gift we could ever give them. I pray that you'll give us the boldness and the courage to do that. God, I pray that no matter where we are in our walk with you, whether we look at you as Lord and Savior, whether we're not quite sure yet, whether we've rejected you in the past, or whether we feel threatened by your Son, I pray that we will read the story and have open hearts and open minds and allow your word to speak to us, to allow your word and your spirit to pierce our souls the way the cross would pierce Mary's. I pray that as we look into the face of Jesus this Christmas, we'll see salvation. We love you. We honor you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior yet, feel free to talk to one of our elders.